Hello and welcome to Platforms for Future. This podcast is about building and scaling B2B platform ventures to help you to accelerate and de-risk your journey with practical tips and insights. In our conversations, we talk to founders, executives, and experts uncovering what they experienced and learned building their ventures. But we also cover new trends like ecosystem strategies, IoT and data platforms, Web3 and sustainability. This podcast is complementary to our Platform Innovation Kit toolset and the Platform Academy, where you can find more tools and learning opportunities for you and your team. For more information, please visit platforminnovationkit.com. And now, enjoy today's conversation. Hello, everybody, to a new episode of our podcast, Platforms for Future. Here's Matthias Walter. And with me is my lovely co-host, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Matthias. Nice to be here again. Yes. And today we have another special expert from Germany, Frank Mattes. Hello, Frank. Hello, everybody to, uh, out there. And also, hello, uh, Matthias. And hello, Natalie. Cool. Yeah. We are really excited to have you in our show. And um, you're... Um, Yeah, very experienced experts in platforms, but also in corporate innovation. And today we want to talk with you about yeah, the best practices and secrets of uh, doing corporate innovation right. And also we will do a deep dive into corporate venture building. So um, yeah, we are really happy to have you. And uh, maybe before we start going into the details, could you explain our listeners a little bit more about yourself, who you are, about your experience, and also... Yeah, you're an author of books. Uh, what kind of books you have written and why you have done this? Sure, Matthias, maybe to set the context. So uh, uh, with me, I have some 25 years or so in uh, experience and in innovation. Back then, they called it new product development, right? And actually, the first 15 years or so are spent in the non-exciting stuff, right? The incremental innovation, stage gates, etc., that kind of thing. Some uh, 12 years ago or so, I went into that more exciting field, the non-incremental space. Uh, back then, open innovation was the buzzword of the day, and I helped companies to find new technological solutions for the challenges that they have. And the whole story that you are pointing to, Matthias, uh, started some five years ago. Uh, so back then, I noticed that my clients, these are some 50% of the uh, German DAX, the prime stock index, and then on a selected basis, European or even global champions, companies like BP, Philips, Bosch, etc., you name it. They were basically asking the same question. They were saying, Frank, we know you, we have worked together in the early stages, right? Uh, we're not sure short of ideas, but where's the business impact, right? And we're getting more and more pressing issues. My corporate innovating, uh, innovator clients said on delivering business impact. You can measure business impact in terms of revenues, right? Sizable business, but also in transformational place. They want to change the company, transform the company. So I looked around some five years ago, and at that time, there was basically nothing out there. Um, there was no input from academia. 
the large consulting companies did not offer any kind of solutions. So I said to 20 of my clients, let's stick our heads together. Let's understand where this quote unquote corporate business building problem comes from. And most of all, how it can be solved, right? And we worked in two years. And uh, if you will, a report of that uh, first wave of analyzing and uh, crafting a solution framework was a book uh, called Scaling Up Corporate Startups that was published in 2018. And since then, we've seen more and more uptake, um, more and more companies jumping on uh, uh, that bandwagon saying, finally, finally, there's a framework on how to get business building in a corporate context, right? And with all the uh, projects that we did uh, in between 2018 and now, um, the framework has been more refined, become more actionable. And that's why last year I uh, published a book called Lean Scale-Up, and that's the name of the framework. Now, you might ask, Lean Scale-Up, Lean Startup? <laughs> Think of it. The Lean Scale-Up basically preserves the good things that the Lean Startup has worked out, like um, agile co-creation with uh, potential customers and some terminology like a problem-solution fit, product-market fit, etc. But it extends the Lean Startup, right? goes until the... Um, into the scaling up phase. And it also puts it in the corporate context, right? Because you're not building greenfield startups when you're a company, you're building brownfield, right? There's something there which could help or in some instances also be an obstacle. Can you just uh, uh, give a, your definition of corporate business building? Because that's really the heart of uh, of what you're you're describing, right? Just yeah, so definitely. We've all got to the same. Uh... Yeah, I mean, corporate innovation, if you look at it, uh, plays out on on on, on uh, many levels, right? They are looking for new technologies. Uh, maybe some companies even doing a real uh, foundational research. And goes up to the point where they say, well, we do have certain ideas, we do have certain technologies, and we want to create a new business out of it, right? Uh, a business that plays out with a, um, a dedicated company like Bosch is um, uh, doing um, in the Internet of Things space or uh, BP is doing when they're la launching a company that balances um, a smart grid in energy distribution right? That's not the old core company. That's a new company or a business that will then later be reintegrated into the existing business units. And the process, if you will, from idea to a point where you have a sizable and uh, obviously then also profitable, meaning sustainable business. This is what I call corporate business building. If the corporates do it, that, right? If it's a greenfield stock, Startup, that's a different story, right? Four smart guys like us uh, sitting together, coming up with a great idea and looking for VC-backed money, but that's not corporate business building. So we clarified that. So um, the main question would be when we go into more about yeah, uh, uh, corporate startups, corporate startup building, why should the corporate build startups? So they have their core business, they have, uh, they have their business, it's somehow working. So why should they build their own startup? Oh, there's several reasons to do so. Uh, 
I mean, at the end, you can say even business models have life cycles, not only products. And uh, you may be also, Matthias, be familiar with the term burning platform, right? That's when Nokia said after uh, Apple launched the iPhone, right? When they finally recognized the huge impact that this would have. And um, the, the, the limited uh, lifespan of business model then comes, uh, is uh, determined by various factors. So for instance, if you look in industries like financial services, you see a new fintech startup uh, basically every day or so coming up and the large banks are in danger of uh, the dying, uh, the death by a thousand cuts, right? Uh, some billions, some millions of revenues lost here, another millions there, etc. So their core base gets smaller and smaller. What you also see is uh, that um, uh, past industry boundaries uh, are not um, uh, fixed anymore. So one example, Munich Re, right? The big reinsurance company bought a greenfield startup for some 300 million that does remote monitoring of um, Internet of Things uh, devices, for instance, that you find uh, out in wind farms, offshore wind farms. And suddenly, Munich Re, a reinsurance company, is a prominent player in Internet of Things, um, um, like uh, or in wind farms, however you uh, describe the industry. And also, I mean, you find that um, customer expectations are shifting. Um, take, for instance, um, the, the the green energy and and consumers all over the world uh, require from companies to decarbonize and uh, also. So to help the world to decarbonize. Actually, for instance, that was one of the major reasons why my client BP, the oil and gas company said, our business model is broken, right? Our business model in the past was, we need to find oil, we need to take it to the surface, ship it via tankers and pipelines to where it is going refined. And then you ship it to the gas stations where you basically put it in your car and you pay um, your, your uh, tax for that and then the fees for that. The business model is broken and BP clearly says we want to be an energy company 10 years from now. So our focus would be electricity. Our focus will not be hydrocarbons. Why? Society asks for it. Why? Um, you do not win the best people um, anymore if you're working in a hydrocarbon world, right? These people would say, no, that's not ethical. I will seek my future in companies like Amazon or Google or et cetera, Tesla, whatever you name it, right? So so there's also war for talent out there. So creating new businesses is, um, you can think of it, Matthias, in my view, also as on the one time, it could be a proactive move, right? Seizing the big opportunities. And BP, coming back to that example, says, well, if the world is decarbonizing, there will be billions and billions of new opportunities out there and we can grab them. But it's also a kind of reactive move when you say for fund fundamental reasons, be it uh, from, from the uh, economic uh, side or be it from, uh, from, from uh, the consumer side, we need to change it, right? So uh, proactive and reactive. Keep it short, it means like also, as you mentioned, the business models have a, a, a life cycle or uh, they come to an end at a certain point in time. You need to look forward and say, okay, what could be the next uh, big growth driver for my company? Um, so let's 
talking about the what. So what are the options for a corporate? So now they realize, okay, I need to do something. What are the options? So we talk about corporate venture capital. We call about mergers, acquisitions. We talk about accelerators, incubators, venture building. Could you maybe explain a bit more in a, in a let's say, in a very comprehensive way? Uh, of course, we can talk ages for that, uh, about them, those options. What do you think, what are the advantages and disadvantages of those models? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in, uh, from where, where I'm coming from, I see three main options, Matthias. Number one is you can buy the new business that you're striving for, right? The M&A that you mentioned. Number two is you can buy um, greenfield startups, right? They do have the technology and some smart and brilliant people. And number three is you can build that business. Now, if we go through these options, option number one, the M&A, well, there are tons of statistics out there. M&A is an expensive business and M&A is also a risky business. Uh, the stats tell you that 70, 70% of M&As ultimately fail meaning they produce less value than originally was invested, right? And uh, all the downsides that come with it, for instance, management attention absorbed in making that integration happen. So that's one option, sure, but it's an expensive and it's a risky option. If we look at option two, uh, buying um, greenfield startups, well, um, these days, in particular, if you're talking about tech startups, uh, there's also a hefty price tag on it, right? It's uh, hef- many, uh, the multiples that are um, asked for are pretty steep, right? And there's also another uh, sober statistic then the companies, when they buy startups, that they not only buy the technology. Yes, they do, but obviously they see the technology embedded into the larger context of the products, services they ship, and also the brilliant people that brought the startup to that point. But the stats tell you two years after acquiring um, Greenfield startups, 50% of the top talent is gone. Why? They do not like to work in the corporate context, right? Where you have annual plans and uh, silos and committees and uh, and then all that stuff, right? That's not what these people were looking for. So that leads us to option three, right? Into building your own business. What I see is that many large companies have, say, the the early stages in place. They have intrapreneurship programs. They run hackathons. Uh, they do the open innovation thing, etc. So there are tons of ideas, and then you try to uh, mature these ideas um, in, um, in stages um, with incubators and accelerators, as you called it, right? But the problem is, and I think that's where the lean scale-up can really help companies is, the problem is the statistics speak a um, speak against you. The statistics tell you that only one out of eight corporate startups make it, make it to scale, meaning a sizable and profitable business. And there's one more statistic that tell you only one out of four that make it to that point will go beyond 50 $50 million dollars of annual revenue. So obviously that's money. Uh, that's not uh, that's not debatable. But if you think of large companies who aim at transforming themselves, like the BP, 50 million is nothing. It doesn't move the needle. 
So basically, if you're corporate practitioners, you have three choices and the stats tell you again that. But just last year, a large consulting company uh, published an extensive study on done on 800 um, CEOs globally. And that clearly pointed that uh, to two uh, statements. Number one, organic growth, meaning non-M&A, meaning not options one and two ultimately creates the uh, the biggest long-term shareholder value. And number two, if you only look at organic growth, meaning um, um, strengthening your core business, the marketing, the sales capabilities, and all that, including business building, business building uh, creates the biggest value in here. So uh, to answer your question, there are three options. And if you look at them, you have to be professional in whatever you do. But the option three, building your own business via corporate startups is the most promising one. And um, okay, uh, this is also what we observed. So mm -hmm. um, we also talk a lot with corporates about the different options and also what they tell us is exactly that what you shared without that the mm -hmm. yeah, the highest chances of success is in the field of building your own um yeah new growth engine and uh, here you have also the option of uh, partnering with serial entrepreneurs what we call corporate venture building so you you partner with them because you bring in not only your own talent but you also partner with some yeah experienced founders and here the statistics are about that the success uh, rate is about 30 percent thirty percent sounds not that high but um, when you talk to an investor thirty uh, percent is three or four times higher than the usual rate how does this uh, corporate venture building so partnering with serial entrepreneurs um, yeah resonates with you and have you experienced uh, um, such success stories? For mm -hmm. example, stories. <laughs> I do have, Matthias, to be honest, a differentiated view on corporate venture building. So let me explain my point. Um, I mean, if a corporate wants to build new business, all right, the whole point is to use what it has built in the past, some assets and capabilities, right, a brand name, access to customers, a customer base, um, um, uh, the tons of experts and existing sales people who know their stuff, how to find and win customers, etc. Uh, a lot of patents, etc. You, you can name it, right? How to leverage these this base of corporate assets and capabilities to create an unfair advantage against greenfield startups and against the uh, startups that other corporates, other incumbents are launching in here, right? And then obviously you need to um, move smart and fast to turn the this potential unfair advantage into revenues in the marketplace. Now, if you basically um, work your way through in validating that um, new business that you're about to build, right? You do have three options how to take it to scale. You can take it to scale inside an existing business unit, right? So um, um, that's how, for instance, one large logistical company in, in based in Germany does it. You can say, uh, well, let's take it out of the operational business because they have a very limited view and um, it's not quite clear if they would really support something that is out of the box. But le let's leave it inside the company so that it can profit from IT systems, profit from direct connections, 
or you can take it outside, scale it up on your own as a separate legal entity or outsource it to those um, corporate venture builders. The point where I have a differentiated view, Matthias, though, is at the end of the day, in my view, corporate startups are not just a financial play, right? You mentioned the statistics, that the statistics that was basically leaning, as I understood it, to revenues, right? The chances to make revenues is roughly twice as big as it is um, if you uh, do not outsource it to corporate venture builders. But the second point is, and my clients uh, see this very clearly, any corporate startup should build a new business, should create additional revenues, yes, but it should also contribute to changing the company, to creating new capabilities. And when you outsource um, venture building to um, uh, these specialized agencies, well, there's only limited backflow when it comes to capabilities. So yes, you may have created a business that generates some 50 or 70 million, great success, right? But how does it help the company, which is in the billion dollar revenues to shape shift uh, it, it itself into a new identity from an oil and gas company to an energy company or from a car manufacturer to a mobility company. So if you look at uh, this um, second thought, right, building capabilities, corporate venture building may not be the best option. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoy our podcast and you can learn more about building and scaling a successful platform business. I'm Matthias, CEO of Fastbreak One. And as you know, we at Fastbreak One are platform entrepreneurs by heart. Since over 20 years, we are building new platforms and this makes us one of the most experienced platform venture builders around the globe. If you are a corporate and you tried out different strategies, consultants, IT partners, but your platform initiative struggles to scale, please check out our assessment services. For example, we work closely together with a leading insurance company who tried to establish a platform for two years, but the results were below expectations and the risk to fail was very high. Within one month, we helped them to understand the bottlenecks and created a step-by-step -step plan to scale. Today, we are working very closely with the company and the platform became a market leader. Yes, we are no consultants. We are entrepreneurs and we love to share the risk and go full in in building new platform ventures. Learn more about our experience and our practices of work at our website www.fastbreak.one or send us an email to contact at fastbreak.one. And now let's go back to the conversation. I think uh, I disagree. <laughs> okay, um, let's debate. No, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I think the idea you you actually mentioned the the unfair advantage uh, okay. of of the of the companies. Uh, I think this is the key, right? This is um, the alignment. So as a corporate venture builder, you have to, one, align with the strategy of the company, the long-term strategy of the company, to leverage the assets of that company. But at the same time, what you're bringing is things that probably a big corporate doesn't have, entrepreneurial skills, some specific methodologies, uh, more agility. And we've got examples where... Some businesses have been also some uh, some uh, startups 
uh, have been uh, built outside of the company as a subsidiary of the corporate uh, by uh, a corporate venture builder. And it does actually, um, uh, and we're not talking about revenue right now. Uh, we're talking, uh, or I'm not talking about revenue right now. I'm talking about uh, what it brings to the company as um, an opening of new markets, uh, for example, from uh, France to uh, Europe, uh, opening of um, uh, or extending the core capabilities of, of the product, um, of the core product of those companies. So I think I can agree with you in some cases, but I think we've got some other examples that show uh, show the difference uh, or show the opposite, actually. And uh, um also, uh, I think the, the, the numbers that Matthias was referring to, uh, it's not just about revenue, it's actually about success um, uh, rates, success rates of, of uh, uh, getting to uh, even to uh, Series A or, and again, not specifically talking about the money here, but the stages of life uh, of, the, of the startup. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know uh, when you you mentioned some eight out of uh, one out of eight corporate startup making make it to, to scale. scale up. Yeah, so here we're talking uh, uh, about uh, you know uh, some uh, numbers that are even better than that uh, in terms yeah. of some of the corporate venture building. So getting to the you know scale scaling up. So just for no, me, no, 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 I mean the, the exact. Examples that the examples uh, you mentioned, Natalie, uh, tell me that something was done right, and that basically was the point that I was li- like to make. It shouldn't be basically a tool, an approach that companies use without thinking, basically outsourcing, delegating that painful stuff. But it should be done wisely. Also, I think you mentioned Series A. There's a big difference if you're on the very, very early stage of the innovation journey, where you try to find a meaningful idea right solving a real life problem where customers are really willing to pay that kind of stuff of the discovery journal that obviously the i I see the value Uh, i understood matthias question later down the road right so if you really want to make it big if you have a minimum marketable product and the first set of customers and then basically you want to take it to a 50 million dollar business in the first one definitely and um uh Practically all of my um, of my clients in the very early stages use specialized agencies, maybe even with domain expertise in those new markets, right? Because in their old business model, right, they have been they cared about their old markets, right? Not about the new stuff, not about it. I'm fully with you, uh, and uh, maybe that's the point of compromise in the argument, Natalie, to say you have to use it wisely, right? Yes. And not just delegated. Agreed. It's not a recipe that. Fits all. I'm I'm the neutral listener here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a it's a good debate, Matthias. Why don't you join us? <laughs> exactly. And what I I heard is also that um, there are different kind of flavors of venture building or corporate yeah. venture building. So one is yeah. um, you totally outsource venture building to a to a venture studio. Mm-hmm. And the other flavor could be that you partner kind of a 50-50 approach. Yes. So you yeah. could also, um, where half of the team, let's say this way, comes from the corporate itself and half of yeah. the other, or well, the other half comes yeah. from the venture studio. So they partner, they co-create at yeah. the end. 
uh, join forces and then build yes. together. Then, yeah. then it would be a perfect, let's say, yes. best of both worlds, bring exactly. best of both worlds together. Exactly. And then, uh, exactly. exactly. So uh, sh sh should I tell one example to, to really underline the point that you're making? So what yes, I and, and, and after that, we should also go into... Um, Yeah, uh, your main expertise about how to scale a startup. Yeah, yeah. okay, let's do so. Uh, maybe just one more point underlying uh, the thought that you just had, Matthias. Um, what, what I find very often is that uh, when, when, when you're doing your work in the um, Innovation Center, Digital Lab, um, whatever is it called, I call it the blue space, right? These guys looking for blue oceans and they have that defined space and maybe even uh, create a first product version. I call it the minimum marketable product to be used out in the field with a couple of customers. Uh, it's, it's not a good idea to end here. Why? Because um, uh, the book Crossing the Chasm and the Pioneers and here comes the chasm and there come the mainstream customers and they buy technology differently, etc. You know that stuff will tell you, well, that's a risky game and you need to win those mainstream customers to, to, to sign up the big revenues uh, that you put down in, in your Excel sheet, right? And how do you do that? And it turns out that in the first scaling up phase as one of my clients is saying we need to get from three initial customers to 30 not 300 3000 to 30 and the point is obviously we want to create more revenue but we also want to make that new product that new service sellable to make it digestible for the um, sales forces of that core, right? You have a catalog, right? You know how to write the proposals. Uh, you know how to, um, um, uh, which um, guarantees, warranties you put in and which ones not, et cetera. You know which buying center you're talking to. You know the objections that they come, et cetera, all that stuff, right? This is how sales units from corporates tick, right? And um, Matthias, I think the only way to make it sellable is that you pull in experienced salespeople from the core organization because they know what is needed to make it sellable. So I'm fully with you. That's the probably uh, the, the the best pathway forward. That partnering approach. Okay, and um, but what we also uh, yes, you, <laughs> the last point you mentioned is really interesting. So uh, bring in the say, salespeople from the corporate because they know how to sell. Um, yes. What we also learn is that in a uh, when we partner with corporates and build up ventures, um, it's it's also about that you that you need the capability to build digital products and to think digital, and this is something the corporate does not really have. So when you talk yes. to a sales guy, he can sell hardware or services, whatever, but they don't really have the experience how to package, how to create a digital product, a digital and how yeah. to sell the digital product. How exactly. does this fit to your... Wow. Make, make it sellable, Matthias. That's the point, right? I mean, if we look at the core sales units, right? Let's imagine a 40, 50 year old sales rep, right? Who knows his stuff, the old products, right? Everything that he needs, the, the arguments, the strings that he needs to play, how to handle objections, how to write proposals, etc. But now Matthias comes around the corner and say, well, I've got a good thing based on artificial intelligence. He would say, what? Right. And he wouldn't be able to um, 
fully understand, at least to a certain point, what this is all about, let alone how to sell it, right? So um, if, 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 if he's not in a situation where he's over-incentivized for selling new stuff, he will inevitably, inevitably turn to selling the old stuff because this is the efficiency, right? This is where he knows when I spend my last hour calling these three people in my sales funnel, there will be one more win and a little bit more bonus for me. That's how people tick, right? So it's really important in that kind of, say, first scaling phase to bring in that sellability, maybe not for the full uh, sales force, but for a part, typically younger folks, right, who are in, into that technology place as well. But nevertheless, I mean, it needs to fit into that well-oiled sales machine, right? This is how you craft proposals. This is the legal risks you can take in proposals. This is how it would show, show up in the catalog. This is how you would configure the solution for the client, etc. All that stuff, right? And um, I'm not sure if uh, venture builders possess these capabilities. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that the typical sales rep does not possess the digital capabilities that you were referring to. So mixing these two probably is the right way to go. So I'm, I'm actually quite uh, uh, surprised. I thought you were going to, I mean, it all sounds so easy. Make it sellable. Scaling is just that. Surely it's no, 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 a no, no, lot no. behind this, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it depends pretty much on what what you're targeting. Uh, is that a kind of B2B SaaS platform uh, connecting certain buyers with certain sellers? Is it an industry-wide platform? Is it a kind of um, solution where you replace um, uh, complex systems with one intelligent device or so? But I mean, on a ge very general level, uh, Natalie, one can say a couple of things about um, scaling up. So um, a general theory of scaling up, if you will. So number one, um, it, 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 uh, scaling up plays out in four tracks, right? So you want, obviously, to, to expand the initial market, right? And there's a lot of theory out there saying, here's a beachhead, right, where you basically have the highest pain points in customers of getting that problem solved and the biggest willingness to pay. And then you expand segment by segment. They call it the bowling alley strategy, where you see the biggest fit to the problem and or the biggest fit of the product as is uh, to the requirements of the next market, right? Then you grow the market and always keeping in mind in every new segment that you're targeting, targeting there are pioneer customers and there are mainstream customers. And uh, um, typically, the, the go-to-market approach changes as you switch from pioneers to mainstream customers, right? The pioneers are interested in technology per se, right? Because they've got the capabilities and also the capacities to turn technologies into solutions. The mainstream the customers do not care, right? They want to have a solution that they can rely on with implementation partners and training programs, etc. You name it. So that's track number one, the market side. Track number two is the product side. Um, think, let's think of the moment for the sake of simplicity as being some IT stuff, right? 
And um, if you look at it, the product also grows um, in a number of ways. What uh, many people uh, immediately understand is that you add more features as the product matures and that you care for scalability, right? Since you do not want to have 10 customers alone, you want to have 100,000, 10,000 of these customers. Obviously, you need to have more uh, horsepowers uh, under the bonnet, so to say. But what what many um, scale-ups underestimate is that there are um, two types um, um, two types more of product work, right? And if they are not uh, paying uh, attention to these and interlock them with the growth in market, right? The technical scale-up and the scale-up itself will come into problems. There's a th- um, uh, one piece of product work. That that I call growth work, right? You do have your customers. You want to make sure that these customers extend their contract and they buy more seats, more modules, whatever, however the product is structured, right? That you retain and expand these customers, right? And typically you find that what these customers need is more like back office support, right? They want to have reports. Uh, they want to have some uh, basic admin functionality that they can do some management inside their company with the staff working on that that kind of stuff right keep them uh, basically um, um, uh, bring them to use that product more and then uh, generate more so that you create customer lock-in and there's one more piece of um, of technical work I call it the product market fit expansion work right so if you start with your beachhead and then move along in your bowling alley right there are more functionalities needed that um, are uh, for new market segments that you're acquiring and orchestrating that market growth with that um, specific piece of product work, the product market fit expansion work, right? That's also a uh, challenge on where many um, uh, scale-ups struggle. So we have the, the market side, we have the tech side. Number three is the organizational growth, right? So if you basically start to scale up, right? You have a minimum marketable product, one, two, three customers, et cetera. Typically, you have a team of, say, 10, 15, 20 people or so, right? But if your ambition is to grow this into a 30, 50 million dollar business in three to five years, that means two things. Number one is you have an annual growth rate that is north of 100%. Right. So basically, you at least double um, the um, the uh, what's going on inside the company, the customers, the transactions and the um, support cases that you need to handle, etc. At least doubling it. And you do that for three to five years. And uh, number two is also you you need more people to do that. So that leads you to two uh, big, big problems. Number one is how do you recruit in such a hyper growing uh, venture and one of my clients said well you hire new people who hire new people to hire new people right 
And this obviously touches on the identity of the company. Who should we be? The founders, right? They, when, when they were back in the innovation lab and when they created the idea and maybe three, four or five people who also were there, well, they have it dear to their heart. But if after one and a half year, you have grown to a company of 80 people, right? If you do not shape culture, culture will happen. And that might be a culture that is not supportive for growth. And actually, my experience tells me if you have those, if you're successful, right? So that's also one of the questions asked. What if you're successful, right? What precautions uh, you need to take to make it happen, right? So uh, if you're successful, you need to, to have a specific culture in place to cope with 100 plus annual percent annual growth while at the same time keep people together and burn for the idea and basically as Steve Jobs had said put in the best work of their lives to make it happen so that's number three um, after market tech we now have the organizational growth the fourth one is the changing relationship um, to the core right so when you when you uh, when you start the scaling up journey the scale up profits benefits heavily from having that corporate mothership, right? We spoke about the sales, Matthias, right? They bring experienced salespeople on a secondment for two to three months, right? Or they bring in an expert for South Asian, Asian markets that help them to land the first customers there. Exactly. All fine. But if they grow and grow and grow, the relationship to core changes. One example, real life example, one of my clients, he had a corporate startup was, was widely successful, right? In year one, it 10x. In year two, it 10x again. So within two years, this uh, corporate startup has grown hundredfold. And now they are so big that corporate risk management, corporate compliance officers, corporate security officers, etc., start to wonder. Now these guys already make up a couple of percent of corporate revenue, how do we handle them, right? How do we govern them without basically cutting off the air and the agility that they need to breathe? So summarizing, Natalie, it's about market, it's about tech, it's about the organization, and it's about the changing relationship to core. And exactly the last one I would like to talk uh, a bit more mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, we talk about corporate innovation and uh, he said, mm -hmm. yes, uh, one key ingredient is create a startup outside of the corporate environment, maybe with a link, but outside, so it can scale much faster. But then over time frame of time span of two, three years, it creates some growth, it scales up. Maybe there's also a kind of a new attractiveness for the mother and say, okay, well, let's, let's incorporate this new growth engine. How do you see uh, this in real life? What are the... The, the pros and the cons of uh, merging the startup back in the corporate environment or should it stay outside? So what, what would be your advice here? 
Yeah, that's that's a profound question, Matthias, that you're raising here, and that there's not an easy answer. So actually, uh, just coming back to the example with that 100x um, corporate uh, scale-up that I just mentioned, this is exactly the project work that we're doing here. So basically, let's think through various scenarios. Scenario number one is it is being reintegrated into an operative business unit, right? Typically, these are tightly governed, right? They have monthly figures, they have quarterly goals, and they have annual goals, right? And uh, they are very much process-driven, and you do not make any mistakes, right? Because this is how they exploit, as they say, their current business model. So the big question is here, number one is, how can we basically provide enough breathing space for that reintegrated corporate uh, scale up so that it can um, um, maintain its uh, hyper growth um, uh, targeting 4x in another year's time and um, uh, working on markets that are partially new to the company. But you know what the biggest concern is in that scenario one, Matthias, for, for, for the corporate scale up? How do we retain the top people, right? The people that burn for 100xing that um, corporate startup, top talent. And how do we maintain a um, entrepreneurial um, um, uh, culture that is necessary to, to manage that kind of hyper growth? The scenario two could be, well, let's keep it reintegrated into the company, but not into an operative business unit. That might be too tight. Um, the governance uh, might be too tight. Let's create a new business unit, right? So a business unit, new business or digital solutions or that kind of stuff in here. Um, that solves some of the problems that um, arise in the scenario one, but obviously uh, people are not going to lunch together. They do not share the same office space. A lot of communication is, um, is, is, is not so easy to have. They might have the same business card, to, so to say, the same logo, the same email domain, but they're a little bit apart, right? And um, scenario three that we're discussing is keep it outside, but with a more tight uh, governance scheme, right? They're too big to basically be a free floating agent, if you will, right? So uh, number one, uh, coming back to the, the disadvantages you said um, in a scenario business unit is if you do not make it right, and it would be a hard work to find out how they can basically uh, have some startup huge autonomy within a tightly governed business unit. It's about people and culture. If you create a new business unit, well, you take some of these things away, but still they are in a corporate environment. Top talent needs to be used to basically slot it in, in uh, certain compensation and benefit schemes. And number three is how do you exert uh, corporate governance and funding to an external unit? I think uh, from uh, all the stuff you said, it seems that the human element is at the center of everything. You, When you talked about making things sellable, uh, that's a human, um, you know, it's from the salespeople perspective, right? Uh, now you, you, you talked about uh, the growth of the organization, the culture. Um, yeah, there's process, there's tech, there's everything else. But the, the biggest 
thing I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, and that, that's just me probably, but uh, I'm, oh, no. I'm hearing people, people, people. <laughs> At the end of the day, innovation is a people game. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I would like to debate uh, for much longer and maybe we'll, uh, you'll have to come back so we can okay. uh, uh, to debate on, on other topics uh, or continue the debate. Uh, unfortunately, we've got uh, some uh, limited uh, time uh, for this podcast podcast and um, I would uh, like so we we always conclude uh, or let you uh, the guests conclude with uh, uh, what uh, a single question which um, would be uh, from your point of view what would be your single most important uh, platform leadership advice to other leaders Uh, three pieces of advice. I know that we're running out of time. Number one is obviously buy the book Lean Scale Up. Right? That's good stuff in there. Number two is uh, you need to create a system where you win the now while at the same time create the new. A little hint, um, a spoiler alert is you need to build those scaling up milestones into the corporate uh, goal system. And number three, if we speak about platforms, Natalie, um, it's about, in my view, building successful platforms is building a hub and spoke right every new uh, participant group target group on the seller side connecting with the buyer side and building more and more spokes so that in a few years you have a comprehensive platform do not go for build a platform and then you try to scramble like crazy to win 50 different customer segments that might be an overstretch <laughs> It's actually, uh, everybody says it's easy to build a, a startup or a platform. It's very hard to scale it. So That's I think uh, we've all got to buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. We will definitely do it. We will also put the link to the book um, into our show notes. So if the listeners are interested into it, they can click on the link um, and then they can find it. Um, yeah, also from my side, Frank, very inspiring um, insights. And uh, we could clearly see the experience uh, you have gained over the last years. And um, yeah, we totally recommend reading the book, also reaching out to you. And thank you for sharing those insights with us here in our podcast. And maybe in one, two years, we can continue. And then we can also um, continue with the debate, but also we can continue to share some more examples from our side. Looking forward. Thanks for having me, Natalia Matthias. Goodbye. Thanks so thank much. you.